Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Friends, would you please pray with me? Father, we need your help this morning. You have promised to us your Holy Spirit when your son went away that he would come and be present with us and would remind us of all the things that Jesus taught us. And so we ask now that we, as we open up your scriptures, would you illuminate Jesus in them? Would we see him as the crucified one, the risen one, the ascended one, the one who will soon return? Would you let our hearts burn within us and may we be transformed by this encounter with your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Well, in case you don't know who I am, I've been out for a bit. My name is Patrick Schlabs, and if you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're not new here, I have been gone for the last 12 weeks on a wonderful sabbatical of which I am just so deeply grateful to you and to our staff for that time away. It was really, truly wonderful, but it is very good to be home. One of my favorite things that I got to do on my sabbatical was spend some significant time catching up in the kitchen. My wife and I married young, and because of her kind of preformed skills and disposition and interest in cooking, she became the de facto chef, and I became what was at best a mediocre sous chef. But the last few years, I have begun to have an interest in cooking. I think I realized that it was one easy way for me to just be present, right? There are ways that, you know, I spend so many times, so much of my day on a screen, elsewhere, interacting with people, that it was a way to be by myself, to employ my body, and to do something that was actually beneficial for our family. So I began to enjoy it more and more and more. But the thing with cooking is that you can't fast track it, right? It takes a while. There's a, a threshold of skill development that you need in order to be capable. And so as my desire to uh, cook grew, I knew that that was going to be one of my themes in sabbatical because before that, I didn't have time to cook much more than once or twice a week. And so it became difficult to, to level up. And so sabbatical offered me just that, this opportunity to level up, to grow my skills. And so I spent time working on basics. There were times where I just kind of grabbed a whole bag of onions and just worked on chopping onions. I spent time thinking about seasonings and I, every time I would go to the grocery store, I'd buy a couple new seasonings and try them out in a recipe. I tried to nail the temperatures of my proteins and my meats. And my favorite part was mixing together interesting sauces to go with all of it. And I'm not gonna brag, but I made some pretty delicious stuff. <laughs> my wife and I joked that this for us was the summer of salt, fat, acid, priest. So, <laughs> so in case I decide to transition to another career somewhere down the road, you'll know why and what it might be. So there were times though on sabbatical where I was able to spend you know, three to four hours on a Tuesday making our meal for that night. And after investing so much time in making every single item from scratch, I found that often it was consumed in three to four minutes, right? Some of you who have cooked a lot know exactly what I'm talking about. It would spend all day, such great expectations, such great hope, and then it's gone. So I guess that's a compliment, right? The kids and family liked it. But what I realized is that as much as I enjoyed cooking for my family only, that to have a proper feast, you need people. 
It's not a feast unless you have friends. And so what I began to do, especially towards the second half of sabbatical, is when I would invest the time and resources into picking out the recipe, going to the store, spending the time making everything from scratch, we would invite friends over. Invite friends that we missed, invite friends that we saw often, invite people from the neighborhood that we wanted to get to know, that sort of thing. And it became this regular rhythm, once or twice a week, of feasting with our friends. It was a gift. In Matthew 22, the gospel lesson that Sandy just read for us, Jesus tells the story of a feast. Of a king, in fact, who is throwing a wedding feast for his son. And so I'm gonna go invite you, if you brought a Bible, to turn there to Matthew 22. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one somewhere near you in the pew. Matthew is about halfway, just over maybe 60% of the way through the book. You can turn to page 827 if you didn't do sword drill whenever you were a kid. In this chapter, as you turn there, I'll just remind you that we find Jesus in this in these scenes of escalating hostility between him and between the religious leaders of the time. And Matthew is careful to point out a contrast between the way that Jesus is rejected by the leaders and accepted or embraced by the least of these. 21, Jesus is welcomed by these crowds and the religious leaders turn their noses at him and say, are you gonna let them shout out to you like this? He says, if they didn't shout, the rocks would cry out. And then we see the blind and the lame all flock to him, come to him, embrace him. And Jesus summarizes this contrast in chapter 21 when he says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Chapter 23, Jesus gives a a full-throated denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. He lists out the ways that they have failed to see the kingdom of God and embrace the kingdom of God and invite others into the kingdom of God. But instead of been out themselves and kept others out. Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem at the end of chapter three and the conclusion of this section. But sprinkled in the last two chapters, 21 and 22, we find these parables where Jesus is aiming these parables directly at the religious leaders. Last week, Reverend Dr. Marion Platt So great to have our brother with us, but he talked about this parable of the vineyard, this vineyard keeper who planted a vineyard and expected to receive fruit, but he did not. So we look at another one this morning. 22 verse one, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, can be compared to a king who threw a wedding feast for his son. Let's stop there for just a second. In Charleston, we take wedding feasts pretty seriously, I would say, right? I don't know that I'd truly ever been to a proper wedding feast until we moved here. And I was blown away at the extravagance of this gathering. And yet even as serious as we take it, our idea of a wedding feast is nothing compared to what the first century would have envisioned. When a wealthy or a powerful landowner or um, king or uh, leader or governor would invite the entire city to the feast. This is what is going on in John 2 whenever Jesus is at the wedding of Cana. The entire city is gathered together. And it's probably a little bit something like I used to grow up with um, in my small town. Well, we would have these weddings that were, you know, I had, I, most of my family are Roman Catholic, so I had like 60 cousins. And when one of them would get married, there would be about 300 people at the various wedding, and there would be about 5,000 people at the reception. The whole town would show up. So something like that is happening here in this image that Jesus is giving them. It would last an entire week. It was assumed that a wedding feast would last up to seven days. 
is a big deal. Sounds kind of fun, right? Somebody should just do that and say, hey, I'm, I'm aggressively trying to be biblical in our life and so I'm going to throw a wedding feast for seven days. See if it, see if it flies. But Jesus' story here, he's tapping into a familiar biblical image. Feasts and feasting are one of the themes, the through lines of Scripture. We see again and again, I was going to list them, but there are too many to list, the times when people are eating with God and eating with one another. The origin story of God's people in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, their deliverance out of Egypt is not just a deliverance. It's not just an exit. It's a feast gathering together, and it's one that they would repeat year after year after year to recount and remember God's mighty acts of salvation. So it was that all of the Jewish liturgical rhythms were based on feasts, gathering together, eating, enjoying, and celebrating the goodness of God. And so in Jesus' time, there were expectations that at the end of days, there would be a great messianic feast as all of God's people are gathered together and welcomed to the table of their Messiah. So that's the imagination that Jesus was tapping into when he tells this story. That's the context they would have heard it in. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who threw a wedding feast for his son. And I will say that it is very simple, but to me, this is good news. It's good news that when the ruler of the universe envisions the consummation of all things at the end of the time. It's not a lecture. It's not a committee meeting. It's not even a worship service. It's described as a party. It's a feast with good food. We heard it described in the reading from Isaiah. Rich food and good wine. It's a celebration. Friends, that's our future is a party, a feast with the living God and with all his people. Provocative uh, priest and theologian Robert Farrar Kappen has this to say, when God is happy, everyone should be happy. And that's where we're going. That's where our trajectory lies. So the king invites his people into his happiness by sending his servants to call all those who have been invited. And it says very simply, they refused. And so again, as a gracious and patient king, he sends his servants, other servants, to say, look, dinner's ready. The food is on the table. I've slaughtered my oxen. I've slaughtered my calves. The food is ready. Come to the feast. But those who were invited paid no attention. They ignored it completely. And it says they went off, one to his farm and another to their business. The implication here is that these who have been invited had agreed to come already. They'd RSVP'd yes. And then now the moment when it's time has come, when the food is on the table, they have bailed last minute. Some of you have done that this week, bailed on plans at the last minute, texting your friend. Maybe not. But this would have been heard as an insult to the king. He's made this amazing feast and it's being ignored. It's sitting there getting cold. But more than just an insult, there are others who see these servants and hear their call to come to the feast and they are antagonistic. They seize the servants and they kill the messengers. The implication is that this is open rebellion. These are acts of treason against the, t- the king. And so the king is angry with them. He sends his army. He destroys them, we're told, and he burns their city. 
but this feast is not going to go to waste. It's ready. So those who are invited are not worthy will go to those who are unworthy. So the king sends his servants a third time and he says, go to the crossroads, go to the highways and invite as many as will come, both good and bad, we're told, come to the wedding feast. And the wedding hall finally is filled with guests. Parables are an interesting thing, right? Sometimes they're easy to figure out. You know, you kind of like, okay, this person's God. This is probably us. You know, they're kind of easy to, to understand and to interpret. But there's always sometimes an interesting twist. This first part, I think, has two words for us. It contains both a word of welcome and invitation and also a word of warning. The first, God is the one who is preparing this feast. And you and I, friends, are invited. You're invited. You're invited to be a part. The ones who were invited first, the ones who might have been considered worthy, the ones who might have been the cultural elites, ignore the invitation. The ones who are maybe raised in the confines of the church, the ones who maybe have a propensity towards holiness, some of those have turned it down. They were uninterested or they were busy with their other pursuits. And so Jesus invites us, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lame and the blind, all of the least of these are welcomed into the feast of the Lord. You are welcomed into the feast of the Lord, friends. Again, Robert Kappen. The world has been summoned precisely to a party, to a reconciled and reconciling dinner shay, the Lamb of God. Judgment is pronounced only in light of the acceptance or declination of that invitation. You are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's the word of welcome, friends. Each of you this morning, remember that. But we should also hear a word of warning here, right? The tone of this parable is one of warning, not one necessarily of blessing. So we should hear that too. Those who are most eager to attend the marriage supper of the Messiah, those who assume that they will be welcomed to the table and given the seats of honor, those who assume that based on their righteousness and their conduct and their morality and their adherence to the law will be welcomed to sit with the Messiah, that those very ones are on the verge of missing it completely. of ignoring Jesus' invitation. The Messiah is there. The feast is being prepared. They're being invited and yet they turn it down. One is distracted by their job or by their work, by their business. But others are also opposed to it. They're rebels or revolutionaries. They're those who seize or kill the messengers of God, the servants of God. This would have been understood as the prophets and the apostles. These are the enemies of the kingdom of God, the the Herods of the world, the Caesars of the world, the Neros of the world, those who set themselves in opposition to the things of God. And yes, it's even the Pharisees and scribes who are here listening to Jesus' words. And we're told in just a moment, we'll begin plotting his death. This is a warning that God will one day come and destroy and judge anything that opposes him, all semblance of wickedness and evil, all the things that bring death and bring tears, God will wipe away. 
And I'm sure for some of you, maybe all of you, that's hard to hear. It's not easy for me to say or to preach it. To talk about judgment is not something that we like to do as preachers. But if we see God's judgment as the elimination of all things that cause death and tears and sorrow, if we see God's judgment as his commitment to put all things right, to make all things new, then we can call it good. His judgments are good and true. Because the implication of this story is that there will be no ultimate joy-filled feast until all that brings tears and death and sorrow will finally and fully be put to an end. And that's the word of the prophet Isaiah that we just heard read. God's judgment will come and it will clear away, it will wipe away all tears, all death. Hear it again. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people we will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And we will say in response, this is the Lord, we have waited on him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This last week has been one of those weeks where that feels terribly far away, right? Feels like we've been waiting so long for God's justice to bring about the end of evil, the end of suffering, the end of death. This last week, there has been so much death and so many tears, right? Families torn apart by these evil attacks. Families will be torn apart by the upcoming war. Yet as Christians, this is where we must place our hope, that one day it will not always be so, that one day God truly will wipe away all death, wipe away tears from every eye by destroying evil. Death will one day give way to eternal life, and then we will feast with God. So back to the parable. The hall, we're told, is finally filled with guests, but the good and the bad, we're told, are gathered, the worthy... Uh, did not come, but he opened up the, wide the gates and everybody came in. So the king comes out to inspect his guests and he sees there a man with no wedding garment, uh, no, no wedding robe. He's not dressed in wedding attire. And he says to this man, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? We're told the man is speechless. He has no response. And so he is bound, he's cast out into darkness this place where there is much weeping and this place where there is gnashing of teeth. And then we have this very troubling end, as if that section wasn't troubling enough. The troubling end is many are called, but few are chosen. And some of you may hear that last section and it may just induce anxiety, right? That's how I certainly read it for most of my life. I'm gonna be the one that's gonna get to heaven. God's gonna come out and he's gonna inspect everyone and I'm gonna be the person without the wedding robe and I'm gonna be cast out. I knew this was too good to be true. I've tried to do my best. I've tried to serve the Lord, but eventually I will find that I am not chosen. There's been much debate about this, obviously, for good reason throughout church history. But as I thought about it this week and prayed through it and looked at all the various interpretations throughout our history, I think the key 
point is that this man is speechless. He has no response because he has no excuse. This is a last minute thing, right? How many of the people on the highways and byways would have carried along garments fit for a wedding? None. So the implication is that when they came to the wedding, they were offered garments. The king invited them, the king welcomed them in, and he offers, them to, clo- offers to clothe them with these garments. I think that was a thing. I'm not sure if it still is, but you know, if you went to a nice restaurant 20 or 30 years ago and you didn't have a blue blazer on, you know, they would give you one of those blue blazers that was always like four times your size. I don't know if that's still a thing. But the implication here is that this man rejected the offer to be clothed. He assumed that he was good, that his robes were good enough, that they were up to the quality that it was expected for a wedding. He trusted in his own deservedness to be a part of this feast. And yet, the invitation, the food, and the clothing were all given as gifts. The one who invited him is also the one who will clothe him. Friends, you are welcome, most welcome. We are welcome at the feast of the Lord, but we must be clothed not in our own robes not in our own garments, not in our own morality, not in our own righteous acts, because we know that those are just rags. The only way that we will not be speechless in that moment, in that final feast, is if we point to Jesus and say, Jesus has clothed us. It's not what we've done. It's not what we deserve. It's not what we've earned. It's Jesus who has robed us. The one who was disrobed of his glory in the incarnation, the one who was stripped and his clothes were bartered on, traded on, and that was exalted, fully exposed for all to see. The one who endured that shame and that humility is the one who gives us his robe. Like the son in the prodigal son story, when he returns home, the father says to us, because of Jesus, bring the best robe, bring the ring. The feast is prepared. Come. The Father has invited us to his feast to be clothed and fed. The Son has provided for all of those things, everything we need, the feast, the clothes, and the food with his body and his blood. We don't come in our own righteousness, as one of our old prayers says, but we depend upon his abundant mercy. St. Augustine says this, Christ is naked, and he will give you that wedding garment, whosoever have it not. Run to him, beseech him. He knoweth how to sanctify his faithful ones. He knoweth how to clothe his naked ones. That is the promise for us. Not only are we welcome to the feast of the Lord, but we are also clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are there not of our own righteousness, but the righteousness of our Savior Jesus. So a couple things that I want you to think through this week. If you're not a Christian, if you're here, you may be exploring faith, have questions about the faith, we're so glad you're here. We'd love to talk to you afterwards if you have questions. But just, I wonder, what's keeping you from the feast? There's an invitation of goodness and richness and joy And hope here and now, because that is the promised future, what might be keeping you from it? Is it distraction? Is there something in you that feels opposed to this offer? The invitation is that God has provided and God has invited you to be a part of this feast. Come. If you are a Christian, you've been invited. 
So live into that fully. It's not your own righteousness. You're not there because you're deserving of it. You're there because you are beloved. And because you've invited to the feast, you're also one like the servants who are tasked with inviting others to the feast. And I can think of no better way for you to invite others to the feast of Jesus than to invite them to feast with you. Granted, you make, as long as you make good food. Get takeout or something like that. But invite people over. Show them hospitality. I heard a, a, a theologian, an English theologian, say that he believed that hospitality was going to be the greatest key to evangelism in the 21st century. I think that's right. I think as we invite people that are disconnected, that are disparate, that are lonely, that are isolated, invite them into your home. Cook a meal for them. Have a conversation. Invite your neighbors over. Invite someone over after church today. Show hospitality. That is a unique gift of the people of God. And it's one of the reasons why I believe so strongly in our community group ministry. This is what we do. My group, actually, we're, we're, we've been kind of off our schedule for a bit. But what we generally do is we gather together three times a month. And then the fourth Thursday of the month, we just have a party. And we are invite, encouraged to invite friends. Just bring people who are not connected to faith, not connected to our church. Just come be a part. Come and see. Because there's no such thing as feasting without friends. So hear the words, friends, of John in Revelation 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen.